thanks to our sponsor, Raygun. Are you under increasing pressure to ship code faster than ever before? Then it's time to work smarter with Raygun's modern approach to error and performance monitoring. Raygun gives you instant visibility into the health of your software. And what makes it so unique is that not only does it tell you when something's gone wrong, it shows you exactly where it's gone wrong and how to fix it, right down to the line of code. Made by developers for developers, Raygun has built a suite of monitoring tools that are used and loved by thousands of software teams every single day. Monitor every corner of your tech stack with widespread language support and native integrations with GitHub, Jira, Slack, Bitbucket, Octopus Deploy, and more for even greater visibility. Visit raygun.com to resolve issues faster and to deliver flawless digital experiences for your users. That's raygun.com to get started on your free 14-day trial with plans starting from as little as $4 a month. This is the Microsoft Cloud Show, episode 424, where AC and I are going to catch up on some cloud news, recorded live August 26, 2021. This episode is brought to you by Geomont. Have you thought about adding contact center capabilities into your existing Microsoft Teams user base? If so, take advantage of our promo to add BuzzEasy Contact Center for Teams from Geomont and get your first month subscription for free. It's a complete omni-channel experience that works seamlessly with Teams Voice. BuzzEasy was developed with best practices in Azure and offers a rich, easy-to-use experience. Geomont is a Microsoft Gold Partner part of the technology adoption program and their BuzzEasy chatbot solution for Teams has been chosen as a preferred solution on the Microsoft App Store. See the show notes for details around a special offer. Back to the show. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm doing just fine. And yourself, Mr. Johnson? I am back in the saddle at home. And uh, man, I got to tell you, after a couple of weeks on the road with a 13-inch laptop screen, it is liberating get back to a mouse and keyboard and a large widescreen, that's for sure. Your Wi-Fi, your bathroom, your shower, your coffee, your bed, and your bed. That's yeah. the stuff you always look forward to when you, go, when you get home <laughs> <laughs> or you're on the your road. Wi-Fi? Yeah, it's strange, isn't it? Yeah. It's strange, yeah. It, <laughs> Someone did that to me the other day and I was like, they go, what, are you, what were you most happy to get home to? And I listed everything out. I had been, it was when I was on that vacation with my family, but then the end of it, I had like two days with just my daughter and I. And I, I kind of rattled off that list and someone, I said Wi-Fi and they go, your wife? And I'm like, no, no, my Wi-Fi. I'm like, oh, shoot, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> I should have clarified that. I should have just left that. Yes, I was looking forward to being home with my wife. <laughs> yeah, they, my wifey. That's what I said. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, no, it is. It's strange. Like I was, you know, you're on the road and you have to, I have to, you know, even on a 15 inch laptop screen, I'm getting old. I'm just so unproductive in comparison. Same. And um, just really, really noticed it this time, trying to get some stuff done and, and then uh, get home, you're like, what do I do with all this real estate? Multiple screens, 38-inch widescreen, mouse and keyboard, good graphics card, power of the computer. Just, oh, I don't know, it's just oh, it's glorious. That's the way I am. I, I mean, I, like, I got a new laptop last year. I got one of those 16-inch MacBook Pros. And I'm convinced now, like, I'd rather drop down to, honestly, I'd rather drop down to a Mac Mini as like a desktop and not have a laptop and just use my iPad as my mobile. But yeah. the thing I go back and forth on is, well, what if I need a laptop when I'm traveling for something? I'm like, well, I have no idea when I'm doing that again. I have no idea when I'm presenting at a conference again. That's the only time I'm going to need a laptop. So I'm like, I just need something, just something small. The, yeah, that's I mean, you've got to be able to demo off something, right? That's really the only thing you've got to worry about. Hmm. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I'm glad to be, uh, glad we had a great trip. 
it was wonderful, but it's uh, it's also nice to get home. You know, some people like slipping into a freshly made bed. Mm. I like slipping into a 38-inch widescreen monitor. <laughs> That's my equivalent. <laughs> I totally get it. Before we move on, we've got some news to cover today. We're going to keep things tight today. Uh, we're not going to waffle on too much. But one thing I just want to bring up before I went on is I was chatting with a friend of mine, Kim Hansen, who I used to work with. He's a, a Danish chap over in Denmark, strangely enough, who's been working on a watch app or an iPhone and iOS app for Tesla. So he's he's been spending a bunch of his free time building this app. And I just thought I'd show, throw it out there for anybody listening to the show who has a Tesla, who wants to try something like this out, give it a nudge. It looks pretty It looks pretty interesting. I didn't know you could do so much with them remotely. And um, I guess it all makes sense. But like, you know, opening the trunk, opening the frunk, I think as well, like the front trunk, I think you can do all yep. sorts of different types of automation, which is pretty sweet. You know, the charging port, all of that malarkey. It's got voice integration and stuff. Anyway, just a small plug for my buddy Kim, uh, who's been diligently working on this app. And I don't have a Tesla, so hopefully you'll be able to try it out. <laughs> it is cool what you can do with it. There are a bunch, when you look at, they don't have a published API, but every, there's a bunch of people who are reverse engineered mm. the rest endpoint that they have for the the UI that we, or the, the mobile app that we can use on iOS and on Android. And I mean, yeah, they've made a bunch of things, made a bunch of improvements to the app to show to do different things. So it's uh, like I've tried to play with it and set it up with my home assistant to be able to have it quickly be able to look at home assistant and give me an alert going, you know, this car didn't get plugged in tonight. Make sure you plug it in before you know, oh, both of our cars cool. are Teslas. So it's like, let me know if we have one plug and we juggle between the two cars. It's not oh, at see. all an issue. But it's been an issue before when we've like, one of us has pulled in going, ah, you know, we work from home. We're not going anywhere. We're fine. And the next person gets in the car and it's like, I got a day of running errands and I only have 90 miles on this range left on this car. And right. you just took off and went to lunch. Like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, 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 fair enough. Anyway, um, yeah, so Kim, if you're listening, nice work on pumping out an app. I think it's, a, I did this for Windows Phone years ago with, with the MyTrips application, right? Yeah. And I think you were part of the motivation for that because you used TripIt a lot and had a Windows Phone. But I just find it like a, it's a real milestone to get some software published to people that, they can buy like there's a lot that goes into that, and just getting it to that milestone is is impressive. So well done. It is. Congratulations, Ken. That's a that's pretty cool. I'm interested to take a look. I saw I was looking at the screenshots of it right before we started the episode, so I'm I'm interested to take a look at it. Yeah, we'll have a link in the show notes if you want to go check it out. It's just FYI, I don't get any kickback for this. It is a paid for application though, but it's I have nothing to do with it. Cool. All right, so we've got some news and bits and pieces to get into today. So why don't we start with that? We'll be right back. This episode is sponsored by ShareGate. Microsoft Teams can be a great tool for your organization. That is, before your users make your environment messier than eating a hard shell taco. And that's where ShareGate comes in. Their user-friendly tools automate the tedious daily tasks involved in migrating, managing, and securing Microsoft Teams so that you can maintain a safe and productive environment without locking it down. Head over to ShareGate.com for your free 30-day trial and transform the way that you manage your Microsoft Teams. And now, back to the show. All right, AC. Looks like Microsoft are trying to make some money. Do you want to leave They us are. Off? Yeah, in the Microsoft <laughs> 365 space, they had a, a, quite a bit of news come out. Jared Spataro, the CVP for Microsoft 365, published a blog post. The whole thing is about new pricing for Microsoft 365. It's not a long blog post, but there's maybe printed out. It's a full page. And there's like two sentences that tell you exactly how much they're charging. So... 
Nothing is changing <laughs> immediately, but they are changing on March the 1st of 2022. They are going to update their list pricing for a bunch of different products. There is a Microsoft 365 Business Basic is going from $5 to $6 per user. Business Premium from $20 to $22 per user. 365E1, that's going to go from $8 to $10. E3 from $20 to $23. And E5 from $36 to $38. And then the last one is um, E3 is going to go from $32 to $36. The big thing that Microsoft is talking about, you know, why they're doing this this is the first, it sounds like, you know, a big price jumps, right? And they are, I'm going to give you a little bit of context in a second, but the thing that's, that it does make sense that they're doing this. It's been 10 years since they've had any kind of a significant change to any of their pricing. Wow. Wow. 10 years. 10 years. And not only that, they've added in a ton of value across the entire platform from doing a, a lot of investments and in, in improving things around using like uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning and a whole bunch of other productivity things. I mean, just imagine all the stuff they've done with Microsoft Teams is, you know, in the last 10 years, not just from when they initially shipped it, but from, you know, well, they initially shipped it and that was just part of your subscription. And then they've added a bunch of stuff to it since then. So they've done quite a bit with this. Now, there's an interesting article. I've got an article to the blog post by Jerry Spataro on uh, Microsoft.com, but I found a more interesting article that talks about the impact this is going to have from a financial perspective with Microsoft on The Motley Fool. Interesting. These price differences are going to be a bump up from anywhere from 8.6% all the way up to 25% of a bump. Now, mm. get this. So first of all, they say, you know, The Fool makes a really good observation that it's not like you're going to see a bunch of churn, a bunch of uh, customer churn from this, because really when it boils down to it, you don't, you're not going to see a bunch of people like quit and leave because Microsoft's got, as they say, a pretty good moat around their 365 business to keep people on board. So it's not, there's not an easy switching cost. Yeah. That point of view, it's like, cool. Now think about this. Microsoft had an operating income of nearly $70 billion in the fiscal 2021 that ended at the end of June. Now, if you look at all their price increases they're gonna have, that's gonna be an average increase of about $2 per user. That's gonna translate to $7.2 billion in additional revenue. And that's on top of any organic subscriber growth that the company is gonna add. Billion, with a billion. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry. And during the, the company's fourth quarter earnings call, Sacha, the CEO, Sacha Nadella, said that they're seeing double digit year over year seat growth across every single segment. Webbush analyst Daniel Ives expects the price increase to produce $5 billion in additional revenue in fiscal 2022. Remember, they have $70 billion in operating income in 2021. And we're looking at adding an additional four to $5 billion of that with this price and by just changing this, these prices. So number one, I think they're justified in doing this because of the value they provided over the last 10 years since the last major increase. But number two, holy crap, that's a great way to add to the balance sheet. (laughs) Yeah, no joke. You could argue that over the last 10 years, what's inflation been on a compounding rate? Yeah, I don't know. It's got to be close to 15% at least. Mm. I would have thought compounding, maybe even 20 so I'm not surprised they're doing price increases as well. Even, you know, value aside, right? Like that is, um, they've added tons to 365 and loads of new features and things. So I'm, yeah, that's a good enough argument in and of itself, I think. But then you 
also consider things like inflation and stuff as well. And that's um, that it all makes sense to me. That's a ton of money, and that goes straight to the bottom line as well. You know, it's not like it's going to cost them anything to add, you know, to increase the prices, really. Yeah. Hey, if you're a Microsoft stockholder, it's probably a good thing. Yeah. Oh, totally. The other thing that it signals, actually, that, that's sort of written between the lines on this for me, is that they obviously feel comfortable doing this. And so they feel comfortable in their position in the market with regards to competitors that doing this is not going to adversely impact them on the competitive landscape, right? Like somebody's not going to choose Google over Microsoft because of this price increase would be, you know, they've obviously done that research and feel pretty confident about that. So yeah, nice. That's, uh, I have no personal problem with this, right? Like I know plenty of people that pay for Office 365 and it is cheap in comparison to what other software costs for what you get in my mind. So yeah, that's a very, very high level (laughs) comment to say, but yeah. I've got a friend that does that's trying to sell a subscription service on top of Office 365 or Microsoft 365, specifically around like managing mailbox and watching him trying to price this additional offering on top of what you're already spending for 365. I mean, I, that's a business I don't want any part of. Just watching like, are you going to charge a dollar? Are you going to charge three dollars? Like, no, thank you. I'm not interested in getting in that part of it. Yeah. Answer that one thing you said, the compounding interest. I can't tell you the compounding interest. What I can tell you is in the last decade and from 20. 10 to 2019. So we're missing about a year and a half here. It's just shy of 19%, just shy of 20%. It's just over 19%. Okay. So it's about 20%-ish inflation over the last 10 years. I guess that's on the US dollar as well, right? So um, prices are going up, but I don't think anybody's going to have to sit there and call AMX and get their, um, their limit raised. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Cool. What you got for us? Speaking of Microsoft and money, they're taking all of that money and plowing it, and then some into advancing security solutions over the next five years, whatever that means. So yesterday, I think it was, uh, I don't want this to get too political, but a bunch of leaders, Microsoft, Apple, was Google involved? Alphabet was involved? Yes, Alphabet, yeah, Sacha, oh God, what's his name? Sundar? Yeah, Sundar and Tim Cook. Yep, okay, those three, yeah. Met with POTUS, the president of the United States, that is, and talked about cybersecurity and you know bolstering US activity in this area. And but the bit I want to point out is Sachia came out and tweeted, you know, thanks for hosting us. And Microsoft will invest $20 billion to advance our security solutions over the next five years and $150 million to help US government agencies upgrade their protections and expand their cybersecurity training and partnerships. So Microsoft is sticking their money where their mouth is. Obviously, this last couple of years, three years, five years, gosh, it seems like forever now, there have been increasing cyber warfare, I would say, right? We could call it warfare now. Mm -hmm. Attacks both here in the US and elsewhere, and it's obviously becoming a huge, huge problem, especially when it gets like critical infrastructure and all that. Anyway, so I think it's great to see Microsoft stepping up to the plate, putting some of their money where their mouth is. And helping with this. Now, you were mentioning also that I think Google was also stepping up to bat with monetary contributions and commitments as well, but that Apple wasn't. Yeah, it was interesting. I put an additional link in here. We've got two links on this this topic, one from GeekWire and one from Engadget. Microsoft stepped up and said, we'll do 20 billion and 150 million goes towards bolstering up the government security-based things. Google said, we'll do 10 billion and 250 million will go towards bolstering up government security, uh, cybersecurity stuff. That's the $10 billion they just got from the CIA. There you go, yeah. <laughs> That's funny. 
<laughs> and Apple is ponying up oh, sorry, nothing. AWS. nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And we didn't have a chance to really sink too much before the show today, but I'm, I'm interested to have a discussion with you over some Apple stuff that's going on yeah. with their the stuff with iOS and CSAM and all that. It is, there's an excellent editorial that he published on his own site that Edward Snowden published on his own site that I thought was absolutely mm. fantastic. Um, that's getting a lot of legs today. So I haven't read that. I'll have to take a look at it. As somebody, I mean, people want to call me an Apple fanboy. I mean, my laptop, my tablet, my phone, my watch, whatever. It's, I Yeah, I get it. But I couldn't agree more with what he was saying. I mean, it was just, it's interesting. Okay, I'll definitely go and read that. That sounds really good. Compromising security wrapped up in a child porn bow. But once you take over, the, take the child porn bow off of it, there's quite serious implications to this. Interesting. Yeah. Could this be a huge privacy misstep for Apple? I mean, they are they are seen right now as kind of one of the one of the more pro-consumer advocates for privacy, right? And this could be a step in the wrong direction for them. I think that let's table this discussion. Let's do this next week in our next episode. Let's talk about it. But I will give you a little teaser. This completely undercuts, what they're doing completely undercuts that position that they've had. No good, Tim Cook. No good. Yeah. We'll see. So I'll take a read and we'll reconvene. Absolutely. Sounds good. All right. What else you got for us? Hey, on the line of cybersecurity and making sure your data is protected, did you know if you, um, as of a couple of weeks ago, if you were building a Microsoft Power app, it was not secure by default? And um, <laughs> unfortunately, 30 million records have been exposed because... People were following Microsoft's advice. Oh, I know a certain couple of people at Microsoft whose last week would have been misery over this. Yeah, this is interesting. A company called UpGuard, one of their analysts found an OData API for a Power Apps portal offered anonymously accessible database records, including personal details. They looked at it and go, wow, that's kind of crazy that we can get access to this database through this API. Surely this has got to be an exception to the rule. And they went and looked a little bit farther going, holy crap, it's not. And the more they looked at it, they found that 38 million things were exposed. Now, th- what's important about this or what's kind of interesting about this, there's there's two pieces to this. I don't want to go, I don't want to make a mountain out of... Molehill? It's bigger than a molehill, I should say. But 38 million records were exposed. That doesn't mean 38 million records were stolen or whatever, that's one. It just means that someone found that the stuff was exposed, but there's no evidence so far that this data was actually grabbed and they're doing something with it. Yeah, The companies, what's a big deal about it is because a lot of companies and government institutions are using power apps. People like government bodies in Indiana, Maryland, New York York City. You've got very large companies like United uh, American Airlines, Ford, J.B. Hunt, and I know this is going to be a shocker, but even Microsoft <laughs> uses Power Apps. Yeah, so apparently this is kind of a thing when you use these Power Apps portals. I'm not familiar with them, but like essentially when you want to publish an app, I think, to a bunch of different people externally, you have to go in and turn off. I can't remember what the setting's called now. I read about it, but there's a setting that essentially makes exposes a particular API or set of APIs to be publicly accessible, that that is off by default. And so you have to turn it on to secure it, is my understanding. But, I mean, this is kind of the problem when you want to make an app publicly accessible, you've got to figure out somehow to authenticate the APIs behind the scenes that those, that those apps are going to call. And so you could say, you know, I, don't, I think it's a stretch to say this was a hack or anything like that. This is an insecure by design kind of problem, and people just don't realize 
the scope of what's available when they do it. That's my take on it, that it was just, it's a, the thing that's disappointing about it is that with so much of Microsoft being secure by default and having things locked down, this kind of is counter to that whole, to that premise. Yeah. That's the surprise part of it. Fair enough. Okay. So I bet the Power Apps team are having an awkward week with the news. You know, they're in a, that's a sticky situation because, you know, essentially that's by design. Mm -hmm. Maybe making it not quite, not so insecure by default might be a better design. Mm Mm-hmm. Agreed. All right. So in some other news, Microsoft is adding some, shuffling a couple of execs and hiring some more execs, I think. Over the last couple of episodes, we've also talked a little bit about some other newbies joining the ranks. But this week we got news that Panos, Panay, you know, the guy that stands up and just drools about how glorious his hardware looks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's the guy that's in charge of what we've seen going on with Surface and all that sort of stuff, right? A lot Mm -hmm. of the new devices coming out of Microsoft. He is joining the SLT at Microsoft. So now he's sort of part of Sarch's inner inner leadership team, or SLT as it's called. And I guess that's a kind of a promotion, I imagine, for him. So uh, a bit of shuffling going on there. And then the second move in this circle is Microsoft's hired a longtime AWS exec, Charlie Bell. And we don't know why. So what's interesting about this is He spent 15 years at Amazon. He's joined Microsoft in some capacity, but currently in the org chart, he's reporting to Microsoft's human resources chief, head of HR. But that doesn't seem logical, given that he was... So this guy was previously sort of considered to be a candidate for heading up AWS once Andy Jassy took the CEO position. But apparently he's left now and he's joined Microsoft and nobody's talking about why. So... I guess we'll see what he's up to. But that could be a, um interesting, yeah, interesting move there. Don't know what's going on with that one. I mean, Scott Guthrie runs Azure at the moment, so I can't imagine them getting rid of Scott Guthrie unless he wants to move on. I I can't. I mean, well, you know, hey, change is good. Change is always good. And while I, while I would, while I love Scott in the position that he's in, that would be one of those, okay, if there's a move there, then what is Microsoft doing or what is Scott doing and yeah. kind of what's next from that? So, yeah. Anyway, so a couple, of, uh, a couple of leadership changes going on. Very interesting. I have a bit of a change for you as well here. Uh, this is coming, going, switching back to our Microsoft 365 space and specifically Microsoft Graph. So long time ago, back in 2017, Microsoft published a uh, blog post that announced that they were planning to deprecate the Outlook REST API version 1.0. And then again, late last year in November 2020, they announced that they would begin decommissioning it on April 30th of this year, of April 2021. But that didn't happen because they just got busy and all this other stuff was going on. So there's a little thing that started right after they made this announcement that kind of changed everybody's plans. That's the pandemic for those of you who just woke up. (laughs) Just in case you're wondering. In this blog post at the end of August, they are kind of doubling down and being more firm and saying, okay, we are actually going to start doing this starting on October the 15th, 2021. So after this date, apps can no longer call the Outlook REST API 1.0. If you're currently using the Outlook REST API, you should plan to transition to Microsoft Graph to ensure continued access to exchange online data. You can't say you weren't warned. <laughs> this has been four years coming. So, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, they'll still be, 
there'll still be companies that are like, wait a second, what? Oh, I'm sure. It's like I'm sitting here and I just got notified, I think twice now, that a service that I use in Azure is going to be decommissioned and I have to migrate my stuff over. Of course, the entire title of the email was truncated. But when I opened it up and it said August 2024, I'll admit that I just deleted the email and said, I'm going to deal with this later. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. Uh, Speaking of deprecation, Microsoft is ending Chromebook support for Office Android apps in September. So previously, I didn't know this, but on Chromebooks, you could run the Office applications, but sort of the Android version of those Office applications. So I guess, yeah, the native version of the Office application. But Microsoft are deprecating that and advising users then now the supported method for doing this for using Office on an Android or sorry on a Chromebook is to use the web versions. So goodbye native apps, hello web apps. The quote is in an effort to provide the most optimized experience for Chrome OS and Chromebook customers, Microsoft apps, Office and Outlook will be transitioned to web experiences on September eighteenth, twenty twenty one. The transition brings Chrome customers access to additional and premium features. <coughs> customers will need to sign in with their personal Microsoft account or associated with their Microsoft 365 subscription, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that's a... I don't know how Chromebook users feel about this, but uh, they're basically saying we don't want to support it. My take on this is Microsoft is freaking out about Chromebooks in general, and so they don't want to help Chromebooks as much you know, in any way that they can. And um, the reason they're freaking out about them is um, because it's a lot of education customers and getting kids and so forth hooked on the Google crack early in life doesn't result in good things for Microsoft later on. So I suspect, I don't know, there's nothing to suggest this outside of my skepticism and conspiracy theory, but I think it's all got to do with Chromebook Compete stuff. Anyway, Google came out with an interesting comment and reply and said, we're pleased to see Microsoft offer Chrome OS users a more optimized experience and embrace the open web. People love Chrome OS because it provides a speedy, secure, and simple computing experience, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, that's uh, that's sort of like a, you know when people talk to you with a gritted mouth and their teeth clamped really hard? We're pleased to see Microsoft offer Chrome OS users. No, I mean, <laughs> that felt a little bit like that to me. But I don't know. I'm not sure. I haven't ever used a Chrome OS, a Chromebook so I don't know how much this is going to impact people, but yeah, my kids do stuff in Google Docs and through a browser all the time for school, so they won't even know the difference between an Office application and an app and a browser anymore. I think that line is blurring. Yeah, that's me too. I don't use, I generally don't use the old Office, like Word, Excel, PowerPoint. I generally don't use Word and Excel anymore. I'm usually it's all like Google Docs and or Excel. And the only thing that stinks about it is that I'm forced to do I'm forced to store all that stuff inside of a Google Drive. I'm not concerned about that, but it's just like I'd like my stuff in one spot. So the web version of Word and Excel is just so bloaty. It's not it's not quick. Also that doing Outlook in a browser, I get it, but like there's a lot of scenarios that I wouldn't trust for that. Yep. Like on airplanes, for example. In dodgy Wi-Fi conditions, like we talked about earlier, the Wi-Fi conditions, yep. you're trying to send a large email or something, and you're not entirely sure if it's gone. Can you close the browser? Probably not. Mm-hmm. Can you close your computer down? Probably not. Like, will it still send if you just leave it sitting there? Like, it's, you know, I don't know. I just don't feel as trustworthy as I do with good old native Outlook. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. 
Agreed. Right, yeah. Doesn't work for me either. What else you got for us? Have we just, I think that we just went, do we go through everything? Or do you have one more? Yeah, we've got one more. Oh, a small one. Windows Server 2022 is now on the Microsoft Volume Licensing Server Center, probably up on MSDN as well, or the, whatever it's called these days, the Download Center. I don't even know if this, had, I didn't even realize this had shipped, but uh, I saw a tweet here that has a screenshot from the Volume Licensing Center and it's available. So I'm like, okay, Windows Server 2022, ready to go by the looks of it. Oh, there you go. I actually have one small little thing that I meant, I meant to mention that I'm just not realizing I didn't. I'm actually surprised that actually the, the uh, attention it's gotten since I posted this. But remember last week, we talked about the fact that IE 11 is now officially dead as far as yes. Microsoft 365 apps are concerned. Yes. So I took a few minutes and was like, well, let me go through and throw a blog post together and just kind of show you how you can remove some stuff from your SharePoint framework projects ah. to make sure that you no longer support IE 11. Of course, I got some people that are like going, yeah, but my company still requires it going, yeah, but you're using, you can only run this app that I'm talking about in Microsoft 365, which now no longer supports IE 11. So if your app doesn't work in it, it's not like you've got any kind of any way to rectify the solution because Microsoft doesn't even care about it anymore. Right. Anyway, I put a blog post together that shows that you really only have to make one little change. It's impressive that what the change has, that it cuts down on the default project it cuts down on the size of the resulting payload by about 27%. Wow. Yeah. So it's a all those polyfills. That's exactly what I said. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you want to um, you want to modernize your SharePoint framework project? Ditch support for IE 11. And all those all those users that complain about it, well, ditch those users too. That makes life will be easier. <laughs> you can just do one transpile and then show your boss like we went from a bajillion megabytes to 20% less megabytes. Exactly. There you go. Nice one. Cool. All right. How about we uh, we wrap up this section for the news and we'll go on to chat about some picks. Sounds good to me. ACs Voitanos delivers on-demand video-based training for developers on the latest SharePoint extensibility model from Microsoft in his course, Mastering the SharePoint Framework. Back to the show. All right, AC. Fun times. What do you got for us this week? Oh, I'm excited. And it's finally, we're finally here, man. The James Webb Space Telescope, which one of our astute listeners corrected me on Twitter where I called it, I called it the wrong kind of a telescope. He corrected me. It's not, what did I say? I said it was a radio telescope, I think, and it's an infrared telescope, or I swapped those around. And now I'm, I'm confusing myself now that I'm on the clock. So <laughs> regardless, the listener that corrected me, thank you very much. And you're right. And I knew that and I misspoke. And right now I'm I'm totally misspeaking. I'm making it my I'm making my error show even worse now because I can't remember exactly what I what I said, and I apologize. But the big news around this is that the James Webb tel- James Webb Space Telescope has completed testing. It is now being prepped for shipment to its launch site. I've been watching this happen over the last couple of weeks. I saw where they took the the equivalent of the lens cap off of the sensor that's been protecting it. This thing. Man, when this thing is fully unfurled, this thing is absolutely beautiful. Wow. This just looks so freaking cool. But of course, now we're not going to see that because it's now all wrapped up, getting ready to be shipped over for its launch, which I believe is still planned for October. Is that correct? I think it's planned for October. Yeah. That'd be cool. Oh, man, this is going to be, this is major pucker factor, right? This thing has been in development for what? 
15 years, maybe. Mm -hmm. I'm not entirely sure if that's accurate. It's been a really long time, though. And putting it on a rocket and getting it up into space and then having it all unfurl and work, you know, there's a lot of single points of failure along that journey. (laughs) Mm -hmm. As far as space launches go, it's pretty darn terrifying. Next to watching when humans go to space, or more specifically, when humans are sent on the first flight mission for like a demo mission. Right. That's terrifying. This is terrifying seeing this go up because seeing, you know, this not the equivalent loss, but it's a significant loss. I might be more scared about anybody that's going to go up on that Boeing Starliner (laughs) with the way that that thing's going. Might not yeah. be, want to be At doing those astronauts. Manned, you know, if it blows up, it's like okay, some wasted time and a bunch of money, but yeah, nobody was on board. Yeah, curious. We're getting close to seeing this thing launch, and I can't wait. I, man, if this thing get, if, assuming when this thing gets fully deployed and it reaches its its um, the Lagrange point where it's supposed to just hang out and start doing its work and sending stuff back, it's going to be so cool. I can't wait to see this. That's awesome. Yeah, we'll be watching with great interest for sure. Yeah. How about you? What you got for us today? I've got a really quite obscure one. I've got a Wikipedia entry for a person that I found fascinating. So there's a guy called Edgar, and I'm going to butcher his last name because he's Belgian, and I'm probably not saying this correctly, but it's you pronounce it either Sengier or Sengier or something like that. Anyway, he was born in... 1879, died in 1963, but he was involved in the Manhattan Project. Not officially, though. So the Manhattan Project got started up, which is the project that ultimately led to the bomb, right? And they needed uranium. Anyway, this guy had been watching what the Germans had been up to, and he was a mining executive in charge of a large mine, I believe it was in Africa, in the Congo, there we go, the Belgian Congo. And um, he was watching what the Germans were up to and noticing that they were using uranium for something. And then he was like, okay, well, that's... And he had a, he did a bunch of research into it and he sort of understood why they were maybe looking for uranium. Anyway, so he started on his own, by on his own, started stockpiling uranium ore. And so he built up a built up hundreds of tons of uranium ore. And in fact, about a thousand tons of uranium ore straight out of this mine that he was in charge of, I think. And he shipped it to New York on, on, and kept it in a place in Staten Island. And eventually, one day, a guy, an actual guy from the Manhattan Project, when they were searching for uranium, heard that this guy had had some and so they went to him and said, hey, can we have, could you ship us, you know, could we buy some uranium from you? And he said, and I quote, <laughs> I think I know what you're doing. You don't need to tell me, just assure me that it's for military purposes. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know how the Manhattan Project was this big secret thing? Yeah. And like everybody was like sworn to secrecy. This dude had taken it upon himself to stockpile uranium ore because he thought the Americans might want it. And he didn't want it to fall into to German hands. And he's just decided, like, I want to help the Americans in the war, so I'm going to stockpile this, and chances are they're going to come to me and want it for their own efforts. And then it turns out they did. <laughs> I love it. His Can answer you when he was... that guy who showed yeah. up and goes, we want to buy some uranium. I think I know what you're doing. Uh, 
I'm not so sure. No, really, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I love I love his response too. When, he, when the visit was there, he's like, he quote, you can have the ore now. It's in New York, a thousand tons of it. I was waiting for your visit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is fascinating. Isn't it? What a find. Yeah. I just thought that was absolutely mind-blowing. This guy had had figured out kind of essentially what was going on with, um, I guess, cutting-edge nuclear physics and and was like, this is going to lead to something bad. If it falls into German hands, I want to, you know, because the Nazis were also working on the bomb. All the scientists were, and it's, there's a whole backstory about how close they were and all that. But anyway, mm. he'd figured this out and decided, well, I'm going to keep this in case the Americans want it. <laughs> and I want to help them. Man, So this is so interesting. Yeah, I was deep in a YouTube bender on um, <laughs> reactor designs. And... Um, <laughs> I was listening. I was, I was listening into some university lectures on fundamentals of nuclear physics. Anyway, and so they mentioned uranium ore and where it all came from. And anyway, so that's how I got onto this. But uh, yeah, crazy, huh? Man, so this really shows. In the last two weeks, we have shown all of our listeners either how in, how incredibly interesting the stuff that a conversation if we sat down and had drinks incredibly interesting a conversation can be or how incredibly boring it can be because you you're on a YouTube bender looking at nuclear reactor designs I'm on a YouTube bender on the technical and academics and monetary policy of cryptocurrencies <laughs> <laughs> yeah interesting huh this guy I think he, it is he ended up being awarded what do you call it the medal of medal for merit he was the first non-american to be awarded the medal of merit apparently for his part in the uh Manhattan Project. And many other awards too from the United Kingdom, Sweden, Romania, Luxembourg, France, and multiple from multiple from Belgium from his home country. Right. Cool. Man, that's the a crazy um, stuff you find. <laughs> he has a radioactive a radioactive mineral discovered in the Congo in 1948 was named in his honor. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's the second to last, it's right, it's in the last line right before the bottom where it talks about awards and decorations. I I'm not gonna try to pronounce this. Singerite? Singerite? A rare oxide and hydroxide mineral, chemically a copper and a ural vander. Okay, now, see, now I can't, I can tell you the formula, but I can't, the rest of the stuff I can't. Vandidate? Yeah, vandidate. Interesting. I don't know if I'm pronouncing any of these things right. Man, that's pretty sweet. Having a, essentially having a mineral named after you. Awesome. Very cool. Good find, man. I'd like uh, CJ Tonium, (laughs) if it ever comes up. (laughs) If you ever asked what you think people should call it after me. Cjetonium, oh, carnalite. There you go. Mm, that sounds no. That sounds like a cult. It sounds like people are like following <laughs> me in a cult. <laughs> yeah, my. Uh. All right. Well, great picks. Thanks for the space web. Oh, sorry, the James Webb Space Telescope update and a little backstory on the Manhattan Project. Very cool. Thanks, AC. Good week. Enjoy the rest of your uh, remainder of the week. We will tune in next week with everybody and we'll talk to you all then sounds good take care cj will do see ya did you like this episode please tweet about it and drop a five-star review in your favorite podcast app it helps people find out about our show and grow our audience and we'd really appreciate it if you have a question for us go to microsoftcloudshow.com forward slash questions where you can submit it as text or record it as a wave or mp3 and provide us a link so we can play it on the show You can also subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, the Google Play Store, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. And finally, sign up for our mailing list by heading over to microsoftcloudshow.com where you'll get notices of each episode as well as the show notes sent to you directly each week. We'll be back with a new episode next week. 
Thanks for listening.